the hell out of here. Hey, you were the guardian? Yes, and you just body slammed me and broke my glasses. So somebody body slammed somebody? What does that mean and why? I want you all to know that we are fighting the fake news. It's fake, phony, fake. They are the enemy of the people. It's a little early to know what it does to a society to have the commander-in-chief, the president of the United States, calling the news media the enemy of the people. I don't like the idea that we are adversarial. I've never viewed my role as a journalist that way at all. Hey, Rome School folks. Welcome to a two-part episode of Rome School. We're calling the Prez and the Press. We're going to go deep on the notion of the press as the enemy of the state, and we uncover some very unexpected ways of looking at the issue. New York Times, The Daily's Michael Barbaro talks about making his show, and we hear the incredible story of Frank Snepp, both of these men publicly scorned by sitting U.S. presidents. We find out what this feels like and what it means and whether it's something new. A bit later, we'll talk to Lisa Tobin, who started the audio department at the New York Times, and to Floyd Abrams, one of the defining champions of the First Amendment and free press. All coming up in this episode of Rome Schooled. So you guys studied presidents in school a bit, right? I did a report on Franklin Delano Roosevelt. So if I'm, I'm going to read you a quote and want you to tell me which president you think this is. It was a president acting out of hand. It was a president delegitimizing a person who was in a source for the press. This seems easy, is it, Trump? Or is it from a president a while ago? Of all people, Jimmy Carter said that. Name-calling and bullying of the press is not new. Abigail Adams called critics of her husband's administration vile, vicious, execrable people. Truth-telling is a blood sport. Being a reporter is a gladiatorial contest. The man you hear talking is Frank Snepp. And if you want to understand freedom of speech and its costs and all the nuanced issues that attach to the idea of a free press, you have to hear the story of Frank Snap. We heard from him on Rome School when we talked about Operation Babylift in our episode called How Did I Get Here? Frank was the CIA chief intelligence officer in Vietnam under Ambassador Martin. At the end of the war, he knew we were losing and that we needed to fashion an exit strategy. And you'll see how he knew in a few minutes. But Nobody believed him. Instead, the U.S. pulled up stakes in the clumsiest, most last-minute and treacherous way, leaving behind friends and families and our allies. Frank went on to become an author and was soon after the subject of a U.S. Supreme Court case involving the First Amendment. And after being treated as an enemy of the state, he became a journalist. We talked to Frank in New York City in the offices of the New York Times' The Daily. We warned him that we had a little different approach to interviewing people. I never find any uh, inquisitive question, any delving question, objectionable. It's only my answers that prove deficient. (laughs) Shoot away. Frank Snepp is one of our heroes. He's won a Peabody. He was nominated for an Oscar for documentary film and has written pieces for some of the great journalism institutions, including the L.A. Times. He's been at the center of the question, is the press the enemy of the people, ever since he entered the public eye? So is the idea of the press being the enemy of the people, is that a new thing or has it always been around? I don't think it's been uh, anything new. I think that this goes back to what in fact inspired the First Amendment. We can think of John Peter Zinger, who back in 1730-odd 
years, he criticized the government. Zenger and other journalists of their time often wrote under pseudonyms to protect themselves. Zenger was tried by the government for libel in a landmark case that established that journalists were protected from prosecution for libel so long as they were printing things that were true. You can move forward in history to Thomas Cooper, who was the subject of the Sedition Acts in 1798, when the Federalists tried to shut down malicious criticism of the government. Now, that was John Adams, the Sedition Acts of 1798. And the justification for this? An undeclared war with France and national safety. When Thomas Jefferson came to power, the acts were discarded. But the Sedition Acts came back a century later, again, during wartime, World War I, when it became a crime to, quote, willfully utter, print, write, or publish any disloyal, profane, scurrilous, scurrilous, or abusive language about the form of government of the United States, or to willfully urge, incite, or advocate any curtailment of the war activities. Hey, Dad. Yeah, yeah. There was a law, but did anybody actually get in trouble? Yes, for yes, speaking? they did. 900 people were tried and prosecuted using the Sedition Act. 900. That's a lot. Then you come to my Supreme Court ruling, and uh, it carries forward the tradition. Jimmy Carter badmouthed me when I was facing litigation way back when for publishing Decent Interval. I was in danger of going to trial, going to prison. All of these things were precedents to what we're seeing today. One of the things I'm going to do is I'm going to open up our libel laws so that when the New York Times writes a hit piece, which is a total disgrace, we can sue them and win money instead of having no chance of winning because they're totally protected. So we're going to open up those libel laws, folks, and we're going to have people sue you like you never got sued before. In general, how dangerous it is for a president to denigrate the press. What it does is to delegitimize the truth teller and the truth that the teller is delivering. I'm really speaking to your daughter. I have a 14-year-old daughter and she's interested in this too. What it does is to make it possible for the man in power as we know from the history of Nazi Germany and what have you, to promulgate whatever truth he thinks will serve as interest. The first step towards totalitarian rule is denigrating the press, making the press itself suspect for publishing what it has discovered to be as fact. And it's very dangerous. Going back to a personal experience, when the Supreme Court was considering taking up my case, Jimmy Carter, who was president of the time, actually gave a press conference in which he said, Frank Snap and all the other whistleblowers who blow secrets are not to be viewed as whistleblowers. That was uh, an extremely damaging public statement and prejudiced, uh, undoubtedly, the pool of jurors which could have been brought into my case. It was a president acting out of hand. It was a president delegitimizing a person who was in a source for the press. In fact, Frank did lose his case. So why was everyone so mad at Frank Snap? Why did the government sue him and take it all the way to the Supreme Court? Here's what happened. The last ambassador in Vietnam was Graham Martin. 
He was a co-warrior of the old stripe. He'd lost a son to combat, and he sort of adopted me as a, a surrogate son. I was his principal intelligence briefer. I dated his daughter. Uh, I was very tight with the old man. But uh, towards the end of the war, right before the communists overran Saigon, it became very clear that this old gentleman simply was lying to Washington and more importantly to himself mm -hmm. about how well the South Vietnamese could do. And he convinced himself, contrary to the intelligence that I happen to be gathering, that uh, there was chance for a negotiated settlement, that the South Vietnamese army was strong enough to serve as leverage and so on, none of which was true. He knew it probably in his heart of hearts. But that's when I realized that I had been totally co-opted. My conscience was not mine anymore, and it was time to stand up and do something about it. So when I got back to CIA headquarters, I said, fellows, we're going to write an after-action report and go back and rescue some of the Vietnamese we left behind. The CIA said, good luck and goodbye. So in the end, the United States left and they left all the people behind? A lot of people got left behind because of poor planning wow. and sloppy intelligence management. So Frank was hoping that we could learn from this, and so he suggested many times that there be extensive review of what had happened in the withdrawal from Saigon, but the United States didn't seem to want to learn from the loss in Frank's perspective. Why? Well, that's part of the delusion, I think. That's where the book came from that caused him to be censored for life. I quit, wrote a decent interval, my book about all of that, the end of the war without the CIA's approval. And when it came out, I wasn't merely criticized, I was threatened with death by some of my old colleagues. During that day and time, the CIA brooked no critics. Hmm. And uh, there was a very good chance that I would be hauled into court and prosecuted as a spy. In the end, he wasn't prosecuted as a spy, not even under libel law. He was tried for basically what amounted to a contract violation. Jimmy Carter, in that press conference, talked about it like it was a violated covenant not to disclose. He said, quote, SNEP signed voluntarily a contract, and later confirmed his agreement with the CIA. And then, when a contract is signed, it ought to be honored. If everyone who came into the CIA or, or other highly secret organizations felt free to resign and then write a book revealing our nation's utmost secrets, it would be very devastating to our nation's ability to protect ourselves, etc., etc., end quote. The thing is, SNEP did not reveal any secrets or revelations that affected national security. The question of SNEP's loyalty or ability to handle intelligence secret material was never even questioned. In getting information out of people in the intelligence community, you knew how to extract information from people, and then things changed dramatically when you left and became whistleblower, when you wrote Decent Interval. Can you talk a little bit about how that shift affected you as a person dealing with intelligence? In the intelligence business, you operate with a mindset. Everybody who isn't is the enemy. 
When uh, Dan Ellsberg leaked the Pentagon Papers in 1971, I was in Vietnam in the thick of things, and I thought he was a son of a gun. I didn't want to have anything to do with him. The same went for Jane Fonda and all of the other quislings, and that was a term we often used. Hmm. So I was very much a critic of the whistleblower or the protester, you name it. I wanted to be a truth teller. That's why I went into the intelligence business, but I was cynical enough or callow enough to believe that if I played along to get along long enough, I could accumulate the kind of credit, the political chits you can use in, in that kind of environment to tell the truth tomorrow. In other words, you, you, you'll insulate yourself, become strong enough politically to be able to do what should be your job in the first place, which is to tell the truth. The problem in the CIA and other intelligence agencies is that tomorrow never comes. Mm. You keep postponing the moment when you will finally stand up and grab the ambassador by the collar and say, sir, we are losing this war and we better do something about it. It's very hard inside an environment where the mindset is total and the perspectives are all shared to step out of ranks and become a whistleblower. I did so because what I discovered at the end of the Vietnam War was that we were lying through our teeth and I had been a thug for, through much of my CIA career. I'd interrogated uh, people in very bad situations, all with the hope that I would get the truth out to Washington and that would make a difference. And what I discovered in the end wasn't making a difference at all, getting the truth out. Belatedly, I became a born-again uh, truth teller, stepped out of ranks and took on the system. Snep left the system and he fought the system. Which system is he talking about? The government? Exactly. The thing is, as it pertains to this show, he was leaving one system and entering another system. Uh, was he entering the four? He was going to um, be a whistleblower. Yes, exactly. But in doing so, he went from one system to another. This whole episode, we're talking about the prez versus the press. The prez? What's the... Oh, the, the president. Versus the press. And right now, there's this whole battle going on between Trump and the fourth estate. Do you guys know what the fourth estate is? Yes. yes. What is the fourth estate? The press. The press. Why is it called that? Ah. Oh, yeah, it's the fourth estate because there's three, but then that was the What are the other three? There's the, um... <laughs> I know what they're One saying. is the executive branch. Oh, yeah. Which is who? Um, president. Yep. And the president's uh, appointees. And, and then the judiciary branch. Oh, judges and courts. Good. And then there's the legislative branch, which is who? I don't know. Congressmen and senators. But the thing is, then there's this fourth estate, and they have, in the eyes of the other branches, they have all this power. And they do, because they make people aware of things. They get the news out there. And so the fourth estate is perceived of as having a lot of power. And that's what Trump is going after. Now, Trump perceives that the fourth estate, which is who? The press. He perceives that the press is against him, so he's trying to take their power away. Didn't you demand that somebody be fired? Yes, he did. He's actually demanded that quite a few people from the press resign or be fired and accuses them of doing a bad job. But apparently it's nothing new. So when Dana and I were talking to Frank Snepp, we asked him what it meant for a sitting president to lash out at specific members of the press. Because remember, when Frank Snepp left the CIA, he joined 
a new system in the eyes of many. He's part of a new system. The great old lady, the New York Times, the LA Times, CBS, ABC, the press, the fourth estate. You get it? Yes. How did he make that change? Can you just make that change if you want to, or do you have to go through a lot of things? When you do that change, you start as a whistleblower. You're, you're blowing the whistle. You're saying, I see corruption. I see something that's horrible. And you, you blow the whistle on it. And then, if you are good at it, or if you enjoy doing that kind of work, you can become a journalist. And that's what he did. Trump asked Michael Barbaro to resign directly in the public eye. I, my gut response was that that was incredibly inappropriate, although you gave inappropriate us a Inappropriate is not even the word. It goes contrary <laughs> to the president's oath to take care that the laws of the United States are faithfully and properly executed. He was stepping way over the line. The, among the laws of the, is the 14th Amendment. And when a president of the United States takes a shot at a particular reporter like Barbaro, and Trump has taken a shot at lots of journalists. What he's doing is uh, really violating his oath of office in a fundamental way, because when a president does that, everybody's listening. Mm -hmm. And for Trump to say anything about a particular reporter is simply unforgivable. And I think if not in strict legal terms, I think in moral terms, in any practical way, goes contrary to the president's oath of office. Hey, you were the guardian? Yes, if you just body slammed me and broke my glasses. I was shocked and dismayed that Gianforti, the Montana politician, took a swing at the reporter but it comes with a territory. The only thing the reporter has to remember is don't swing back. <laughs> because if you do, you'll validate the anger that's being directed at you. The reporter was perfectly justified in going up and asking basically a health care question, of all things, to set this guy off. Uh, my heavens. The only thing I regret was that our Guardian reporter in that instance wasn't a television guy with a camera. Had that been caught on camera, he would have been... Uh, far more accountable than he was. So it goes with the territory, and sometimes it makes a hell of a good story. When the Supreme Court decided against me, I didn't walk out of the courtroom down the steps and think, my life is finished. What I thought was, wow, I've just been given another scandal to cover. And indeed, that's, what, that's exactly what I did. I wrote a book about my Supreme Court case. If you're a genuine truth teller and seeker, everything is grist. And rather than be defeated by the Supreme Court decision, which was devastating financially, I lost friends, uh, I felt I was uh, totally isolated. But I was left with the consolation that I had a hell of a good story to tell. And that's mm. what I did next. And that's what you do. Yes. That's what a journalist does. You don't worry about whether the guy has slugged you or has threatened your job. You make that a story. You make it another vessel for truth-telling. He's a sleaze, my book. A year of sleaze. Sit down. Sit down. 
Sit down. Are you ready? Do you have your pad? They do whatever they can to make you look bad. They are disgusting. Disgusting. Totally dishonest. Dishonest. The most dishonest people. Scum. Scum. They're worse than Lion Ted Cruz. Horrible press. Horrible people. Sure. Some are nice. somebody would quit quit their job or be fired. Dana, do you want to start? What is your favorite part of the job? That's a really good question. What is my favorite part of this job? My favorite part of this job is feeling something. I think when we can make people feel the news because of the power of audio, and when we ourselves feel it, which we do all the time, I mean, we've been in tears in the studio listening to the story of, of assisted suicide in Canada, or um, Mark Gray, the coal miner, um, who talked about the pride he takes in his career, or one of our colleagues describing Afghanistan and his life there and what's happened to the country he grew up in. Um, then I think we've transformed the news into something that's going to stay with you for a really long time. Dana and I are in New York City in the studios of The Daily, the number one New York Times podcast. We got a rare visit into The Daily production studio, and we spent a day watching them put the show together. This is Michael Barbaro. He's a managing editor at The Times and a journalist, but also now, since February of this year, one of the most trusted voices in audio. I think a lot of times you can read a newspaper story and and kind of have a hmm, like, and you can have a moment of discovery and an intellectual epiphany, but audio, because of the intimacy, because it's in your ears and because you're hearing people's voices and you're hearing their emotion, it makes you feel things really deeply. And when you feel things really deeply, then there's the possibility that, that, that it's going to completely reorder the way you think about it. How do you avoid having that seem manipulative as opposed to the black and white on the page? Well, the moments that have, that have made me and I think the listeners feel the most are pretty inadvertent. They just happened. So I, we asked a question and someone said something that kind of blew our mind. And so I don't know how that could be interpreted as manipulative. I think, you know, it's spontaneous. It's not a matter of parading people in front of the microphones in order to elicit an effect right. in an Oprah Winfrey... Um... We're not giving away cars here. We're not... <laughs> You get a car, you get a car, you get a car. No, Not to criticize that. No, no. I mean, hey, as best I can tell from my research of that amazing episode, every one of those guests really needed a car. Yeah. But, um, but we're not doing that. Right. It's not intended to make you feel something one way or another, but it happens. Sitting in a studio on the 16th floor yeah. of the Grey Lady, the, the great institution of journalism. But instead of being out there on the beat, you are in a bunker of soundproof recording studio that you and Lisa Tobin have created. It's very different. It's, it's very new. It's not like the talking heads. And it's also not like journalism exactly. What is it and why are you doing it? Why am I doing this? That answer is pretty simple because New York Times journalism is so vital and so meaningful to the world and to me that the opportunity to help transform it 
into its newest chapter, its newest iteration, was really hard to turn off. It was an opportunity to take New York Times journalism and transform it, transmute it into a new medium with all the integrity and pride and rigor of what we do in print and online, and that is a real privilege. Not everyone feels the news in the same way. Michael Barbaro has had the president's ear for some time. He covered candidate Trump, and one particular investigative piece rubbed Trump the wrong way. Trump's reaction was to demand that Michael resign. But a few months later, Trump was cordial and even gave the New York Times the first scoop on his post-election victory interview. To me, it's confusing. It reminds me of a volatile relationship that I was in once. And it's definitely confusing to Dana. Dana asked Michael to tell us what's really going on from his perspective with Trump and the media. Well, as long as I've covered politics, there have been politicians to some degree who are attacking the press, covering them. And those attacks take many forms. I mean, sometimes it's just like incredulity. Like, I cannot believe that, that, that my administration is being covered this way. And sometimes it, that is conveyed publicly. That being said, most of those communications are done privately. I mean, there's a long and rich tradition of elected officials calling editors at news organizations and saying, what the? Why are you doing this kind of coverage day after day? I think you're really, and, and it, so it ends up becoming a, a pretty civilized conversation about coverage, you know, constructive. Mm. And I think what's really different about President Trump is that, that he just seems to skip the back channel and the private channel, the, which is his complete right. And it's all public and it's more systematic than it is kind of episodic. It's almost like a prophylactic. His frustrations with the media and his claims of a bias and a deep flaw in the system of the news media was kind of original to his candidacy in some ways. It was something he was talking about from the very start. And he would do it whether or not there was a particular offense in mind. I mean, when you when you have a campaign rally and you just describe this awful media out in the distance, which he would point to, that felt to me more strategic. He's digging trenches. That's right. If your stance is that the press is the enemy of the people, what does that do to us as a civilized society? It's a little early to know what it does to a society to have the commander-in-chief, the president of the United States, calling the news media the enemy of the people. I don't like the idea that we are adversarial. I don't believe our role is to be adversarial. I think our role is to hold people accountable. I think there's a difference. One of my favorite quotes on Earth is from a guy named Kingman Brewster, who was the president of Yale, and he had this wonderful line about the presumption of innocence, and I might butcher it, but the line was... Um, the presumption of innocence is kind of a legal framework, but at base, it's a generosity of spirit that says that you believe the best, not the worst in someone. And journalistically myself, I want to believe in the presumption of innocence the same way legally you want to, and then you work from there. And obviously, sometimes you're disappointed. Yeah, it's interesting how things that have to do with more institutional wisdom translate. I don't know if you've ever, have you ever done therapy? Yes. <laughs> have you ever had couples therapy? Maybe. <laughs> There's um, the presumption of positive intent. Is mm. That's the term that was always used. A struggle. Yes. So it actually brings us to some of the questions that Dana came up with. Hello, Dana. What does it feel like when a subject lies? What does it feel like when a subject 
lie? Good question. I think the challenge in answering that question is that if and when a subject lies, you don't necessarily know that they're lying. If you do know. If you do know that they're lying. I can't think of a time where someone I was interviewing lied to me when I was interviewing them. Because lie, lie is a big word that I think about a lot. Mm -hmm. But I'll tell you an interesting story because we used it to describe Donald Trump as a candidate when he repeatedly kept claiming that President Barack Obama was not born in the United States. And when we used that word, we had a really long debate that morning about whether it was the appropriate word to use mm -hmm. because we felt that word conveys something very important, which is intention. The example would be, I, I come in this room and I hear Dana say, I hate Poland Springs water. I wish Michael wouldn't give me this water. And then I sit there and I ask her if she likes it. And she says, yes. The bar is still really high. It should be very high for me to claim that you are deliberately misleading me and deliberately being deceptive about whether or not you like that water. Because you it may just be that you feel pressure from me to say you like the water. You're trying to be nice to me. But it's still not honest. It's still a, a lie. Yes, but I would argue that the word lie should be reserved for very special occasions. Such as? Such as when someone shows a repeated pattern with something, despite knowing better and knowing the truth, being presented with it many times, or at least once very clearly. OK, back to Trump. We felt it was okay to call Donald Trump uh, essentially a liar because we knew and could document repeated times where he'd said it, been publicly corrected and chastised, and he kept doing it. And that shows an intent to not grapple with the truth and to be deceptive about it. It surprised me to hear that you have never had a subject lie to your face. You don't use that word lightly, but still. <sighs> There's a lot in the world of politics and political strategy of kind of wiggling, of omission, of someone keeping something from you. You're one of the last people I would expect to have a job in which people tell you the truth most of the time. Well, Congressman Anthony Weiner certainly lied about the nature of his online interactions in conversations that, that we collectively as a news media and I was involved in covering him through his sexting scandal where he was sending inappropriate texts to young women around the country and he was, in retrospect, lying about that. When a subject lies and you know that they're lying, but the truth is too hard for people to hear, have you ever been tempted to just carry that lie to the public? Oh no. No, I mean, if you know something's not true, then you have to find a way to correct it. And if, I feel really strongly about that. There's an older model in journalism that says that someone has told you something, and you're going to print it, and then you're going to maybe go and check it with somebody else, and you're going to present their version of it, and you're going to maybe put those two things side by side and kind of let the listener or the reader make a decision about it. But in particular, Donald Trump's campaign presented us with kind of serial, frequent episodes of factual inaccuracies that we then felt we were complicit in if we just printed them. So we needed to actively correct them, which is to say, state what he'd said, and even in the same sentence, not even with an interruption of a period, say that that's not accurate. If you interrupt it with a period, what's the difference? Arguably not much, but <laughs> I believe if you're not careful, a headline can reflect 
a claim that's not true. And then the lead can reflect that claim unchecked. And then before you know it, you're in the third or fourth paragraph before you're correcting it. And I found that really frustrating to read um, in any of the coverage, especially of Trump. Interesting. How does it feel when Trump demands that you resign? Is there any part of that that's flattering or says, boy, I must have done my job, I must have hit a nerve? No, I don't, not for me. I, you know, it's really, it's really unsettling and kind of mortifying to have someone at that level basically suggest that you're not worth your work and that you, that you, that you shouldn't be doing the career that you're, you know, committed to and proud of. So, no, it was, it was deeply unsettling and certainly caught my attention and but the reaction was to just keep doing the journalism when a candidate has started to describe the entire news media as fake disingenuous deceptive then you can expect them to use that framework to object to anything they don't like a generalized framework rather than a fact by fact yes i know that journalists don't want to be part of the story but how does it make you feel when such general bombs are lobbed across the trenches in your direction. And you're not just going to do research on a, on a subject, seeking knowledge and truth, but you're rather having to be prepared for the slings and arrows. How does that feel? I mean, it's it's unpleasant to be accused of, of being anything other than an upstanding person, right? Kind of, this is just like a normal interaction. So if we're talking about the, the work that I do, or that you do, or that Dana, you do, and your schoolwork, no one likes to be criticized, and no one likes to be impugned, especially when it comes to motivations, which I think is what we're really talking about here. That mm-hmm. Yeah, because well, it wasn't a criticism. He didn't say Michael Barbaro is a crappy writer, his prose is drab, it lays on the page. He accused, he impugned you of insidious intent, which I know is not the case. I think to be criticized repeatedly by the person or the people you cover, if a journalist is being honest, is hard and unpleasant, just in the way it would be if anybody in any line of work found that they were being repeatedly and publicly, which makes it in some ways harder, criticized. But it is the nature of our work to anticipate that this may happen and to be prepared for it. We don't want to shrug it off and we don't want to obsess over it either. But somewhere in the middle there is the right way to take really critical feedback, however unpleasantly delivered, like has to be grappled with. And so I'm the first to admit that I absolutely read the emails, the critical emails I get, for example, on the daily, about the daily. I read them really carefully. I read them, I read the feedback on Twitter, even no matter how critical it is. And I process it and I think about it. And of course, if you see a, if you see a pattern over time, if you see a group of people saying, we think this is getting too far that way, or we think your tone is this, then it's something you think about. So about that moment when Trump demanded that Michael Barbaro resign, how did that come to happen exactly? When you work on long investigative pieces, which is often what I've been involved in during the campaign, you can be singled out for special scrutiny. And I think that's what happened with that piece about the women. The women. Did that piece, do you think, come as a surprise to Trump when he read it, that it was that light? Probably not. because I, I, don't, I don't believe it would have been right. because we walked him through every single fact in the story, which is what we do with everybody. I think people sometimes are confused about how journalism works. If I'm writing a story about a subject, this is my own system in particular, um, particularly a long and difficult investigation that involves lots of parts, I will send a very detailed memo. I call the No Surprises memo. And it lays out 
This is what the article is about. This is what it states. These are the accounts. These are the descriptions, sometimes very minute. This day, this place, this amount of money, this business deal. This is how I believe you build a trusting relationship with people, even when you're writing pieces that they may not like. I've done that with Jeff Bush. I've done that with Mayor Mike Bloomberg. I've done that with candidate Donald Trump and anyone I've ever covered. And sometimes these memos are two, three, four pages long and then they get a chance to respond in detail. We really strive to make sure that the people we're covering feel like we've reflected them correctly. It's the goal of the journalism. In, in the case of Donald Trump, we gave him a long and I think quite ample opportunity to respond on the record. Those were all on the record interviews, which we think is really important. You know, that people are being quoted, they have their name by it, they put their reputation by it, and, and he had a chance on the record as well which is to say quoted fully by name, to respond to each and every one of those descriptions and claims in the story. And we felt the story was really fair. Uh, he objected to it and claimed that it wasn't fair. Um, but Trump and his team did not point out or ask for any corrections in the piece um, and didn't point out any, any errors of fact. Michael and his co-author Megan Tuohy on that story spent over an hour with Trump on the phone talking about the specifics of the reports from the women in the story. Trump's ultimate response, we've already talked about, but this isn't about that story, and obviously it's not news. We're talking about the process that led to that fiery tweet in which Trump demanded that Michael Barbaro resign. But everything's changed now. Trump is no longer a candidate, and Michael Barbaro, for the moment, is not writing long-form investigative pieces but rather is the host of The Daily. Your job has changed from being a reporter on the beat, mm -hmm. covering political affairs, to being a trusted mind and voice to bring one the news uh, in, a, in a condensed manner. How has it seemed from your perspective that your job has changed? Well, it's changed because I no longer inhabit this institutional voice, which is kind of the way written journalism feels at the times. And that's not, that's not a criticism. I mean, there's a very well-earned kind of authority and voice of being a writer at the New York Times that's been kind of handed down through the generations and it's, it's changed over time. But it's, but it's an institutional voice. And I think the idea of the daily, and it's been a challenge for me, is to step back from that kind of, a, kind of omniscient voice of the New York Times and to be, become more of a human being and to sound like a regular person. You know, listeners hear me thinking, they hear me grappling with it, they hear me responding to something in real time. And that is, by definition, going to feel less formal and rigid than the Times newspaper writing. And so just learning to deal with that has been a challenge, but a really satisfying challenge. It's definitely changed the way I hear the facts as they mm -hmm. come in. Just listening to you grapple with it, as you said, and in a very vulnerable way, has changed the way I look at the institution of the New York Times. I feel like when I listen to the Daily, I'm getting inside the mind of a reporter, but it's like an MRI view of your brain. Exactly. It's a little bit like kind of seeing the ingredients of the cake come together, and you're watching it, and you're watching the kneading and the rolling. And the and I, and I like that. I think that one of the challenges of modern journalism is that people see an end product they don't quite understand, mm -hmm. and they have a lot of questions about, and they may even have some skepticism around. We're literally talking to journalists in the middle of the day while they are still processing the news, mm -hmm. watching it, as you say, kind of MRI style, like you're seeing the x-ray version of the journalism happening. And that, I think, is in some ways as satisfying, if not more satisfying, than looking at the end product. And what I never hear is, how are we going to spin this? There doesn't seem to be any sort of patina on anything that you're doing. Um, do you feel a little bit naked and exposed when you do that? Sure. Yeah. 
but in a way that I think is honest and that people crave. When you use the word spin, it's really interesting. I think the original idea of a spin cycle was a book that Howard Kurtz wrote. It was about how the political world, the strategists, they are the spinmeisters. They are the people who take a piece of information and reformulate it and put it out there in a different way. And the idea was that the media was spun. I think more recently, there's this idea that the media is the spinner and is the weaver of how things are interpreted. And, um, and I think that's a really interesting debate to be had. I think what the Daily does is it creates kind of frameworks for things. It's ways of thinking about it. I hope people don't view that as spin. I don't. I view it instead as kind of us chewing through something and thinking about the most interesting way in which you know, the listener can digest it. That's Michael Barbara, and you're listening to Rome Schooled. And we have chewed through some of the issue about the press and the prez in this episode. Hey, I want to let you know about three things. One, Rome Schooled would like to deputize you and your family. Check out our Deputy Rome Schooled Ranger badges on our website. They're cool for kids and especially grown-ups. And find out about how you can get involved. One way, make a donation. We're a 501c3, so it's tax deductible. Help us tell the stories that need telling, not the ones that divide us, but the ones in which we find some sort of common ground, as difficult to find as it may be. Our mission is to start real, in-person conversations in search of that common ground. And in the meantime, our mission is to blow your minds with knowledge. Speaking of blowing your minds, we'll be back next week with part two of The Press and the Prez. So subscribe on iTunes or through Acast and look for part two soon. In part two, you'll meet the visionary Lisa Tobin, the creator slash executive producer of the New York Times audio department. And we'll visit with the First Amendment guru, Floyd Abrams. You may not know him, but because of him, you may speak freely. Thanks for listening to Rome School. Today.